Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Justice Technology Professionals. Uh, this is our first podcast, and I wanted to create this podcast for several reasons. Uh, to address certain things within the realm of legality, for lack of a better saying. And what I mean by that is a lot goes on when you're involved in uh, the criminal justice system or the legal system in any way, whether civil or criminally, um, specifically criminally in, in, in my focus today because that's one of my organization's expertise is where we really dive into criminal cases. Uh, we have helped a lot of civil cases as well, but I personally just actually find criminal uh, interesting. Uh, I try to help people, and I really try to, you know, give them the best uh, opportunity for favorable results. And what we do, what my firm does, is it's a litigation support firm, which basically is a backup company to uh, an attorney or to a law firm where they need guys kind of in the trenches um, going through the discovery, extracting the discovery, analyzing the discovery, uh, looking at the audio, looking at the video, seeing if things are off, seeing, seeing if things needed a forensic analysis that we would have to take care of, see if audio needs to be transcribed, see if the transcripts that the government gives are accurate with the audio, which, believe it or not, uh, coincidence or not, there's many, many times where they're not accurate at all, and if you don't take a proactive approach and verify what they're giving you matches the audio, you could have a problem because come trial, they're going to play that audio. You know, the judge is going to instruct the, the jury, obviously, that the transcript is just a guide. It's not, a, uh, it's not to be considered evidence. The actual audio is. But common sense dictates when you're reading along with something, whatever's written on that piece of paper, that's what you're going to hear. So it's very important for uh, the defense to have an accurate representation of what those audios are actually saying. So we, we do all, all things along those lines, investigative work, court runner, uh, to, pull, to pull specific records that could help the case. We try to keep the client in the mix and in the know of what's going on, what's taking place, so they're not just you know paying bills that come in from... Uh, legal bills and not and not knowing what, what constitutes those bills. Um, I don't have any lawyers in my firm. That's not what I do. What I do is uh, I, I'm actually a paralegal. I got my certificate in paralegal studies and I started the firm to really uh, bridge a gap between defendants and attorneys and make sure you know everybody's on the same page and everybody's kind of working as hard as possible for the case at hand. Uh, my background's in the service industry. I've had organizations and companies where it's all about service, and I treat this the same way. I feel when somebody's a defendant, they should be getting what they pay for. They should be getting the service at the highest level possible because, in reality, stakes aren't any higher than that. That's your life, and it affects your family, and it affects you, and that's your life, and you want to make sure you're not just throwing the money away to somebody to some attorney who's on autopilot looking to bill but really has no passion, no expertise, no knowledge, and is looking just to talk a good game and tell you, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, when in reality, you want to be shown what they're doing. And uh, today's podcast is really just going to be an overview. I'm not going to go into anything too specific today because I just want to give the 
potential audience. Hopefully, you know, people pick up on it and hopefully it can help it can help um, those that are going through legal issues to just have a little guidance on things to look for. And the overview is going to be we're going to have different topics. I'll have guests on in the future um, that could just help educate the listeners in the sense that um, I would want guests on cell site, for example. You know, nowadays they always hold on to the cell site technology. And when you hear it from the government, they make it like it's so matter of fact that this cell site's a 100% accurate science when even myself, before educating myself on it, learning about it and researching it, I thought that cell site was, you know, something to contend with. If you have cell site on your defendant, that's really an obstacle you got to get over. When in reality, it's not as accurate and scientific as they make it. There's a lot of flaws to it. Um, it's not as direct. It's not like a GPS. It's not like a, uh, you know, like a, a, a Google location where they have Google on your phone and they get a GPS exact location, which is within meters of where the person's located. Cell site's not like that. Uh, a lot of things can affect it, the satellite. Uh, I'm not versed enough to talk intelligently on it, so I'll be having an expert to really go into the details. But it's not like the people, like the general public would think, and that's important. I mean, especially for potential jurors. You want to be aware that there's another side of these things. And that's where defense attorneys really come in. You know, you're a defense attorney. You better have your opposition, oppositional expert. You can't just allow the government to put theirs on and then you're going to cross him. That's not going to fly. You better get ready and have your, your expert and, a, and, a, and a one with massive credentials that can show and can prove and can testify how flawed cell sites can be. You have to poke holes in it. You have to show the reality of it. And, you know, those are a lot of the topics we're going to be covering. I mean, different things that the general public isn't aware of. That once you get involved in the system and you're going through these things, you wouldn't believe it. You know, the average person would say, oh, they can't do this. The go- you know, the government can't do that. And they can. And I'm not saying I have a different outlook on things. That's, you know, their job. I'm not bashing it. I have maybe my own personal beliefs on certain things. But the bottom line is if you're a prosecutor, you're, you know, uh, you're in law for- enforcement, there's no problem with that. That's your job. That's what you're looking to do. I mean, that's, you know, what you get paid to do. You, In your mind, you're putting bad guys away. And that's how it goes. But here's where I get a little bit of a problem with it. When things are done unethically, when when lies are done to create cases, when they, when they use poor witnesses, witnesses of horrible character, witnesses who are known compulsive liars, and they bring them forward, or who have terrible habits, terrible records as far as crimes they commit, horrendous acts, and they're putting these witnesses on as if they're choir boys, and as if what they say is, is, is gospel, and everything that comes out of the mouth is truth. You know, if you're going to investigate a case, you're going to put your time into the case, you're the government, you have endless resources, you have endless staff, you have endless ability. Just do it the right way. That's, that's really how it should be done. Just make it a bit of a level playing field. You know, what's uh, good for one side should be good for the other side. One topic that always bothered me on that in general terms is when you get some of these witnesses, a lot of times the judges will limit what the defense is allowed to ask about regarding their background. A lot of these witnesses are bad people. And I have no problem with the sense of the concept, okay, you want to be a witness, 
my personal views on it may be something different, you know, to, to look in the mirror and to basically say, okay, I'm going to tell on somebody else because I don't want to be accountable for my own actions. So I'm going to put the blame. To me, that's a, a lack of conscience. I mean, you know, that's just the way I personally feel about it. But put that aside. One thing has nothing to do with the other. You want to be a witness. Okay. You want to tell what happened. Fine. You must tell the truth, though. It's when you start lying and you start tailoring your supposed testimony to fit a false narrative that's been created. That's a problem. That's deceitful. And, and, you know, an honest prosecutor or, you know, an honest U.S. attorney, they see these things. They should really, you know, do something about it. This guy isn't who he says he is. This guy is telling lies. This guy is breaking laws. You know, uh, you have the um, witnesses that are part of the witness protection program. But yet when you dig in, they're breaking all kinds of laws, and you're not allowed to bring a lot of that out during trial. You can't set the tone on credibility so the juror understands who is this person in front of me testifying. But yet on the flip side of the coin, the government is allowed to go into your client's history. So now if you have a client who had some, you know, poor times in their life where maybe they made bad choices, but they paid their sins... They paid for their sins, they went, they did their time, they came out, they tried to make a new run at life, tried to change things. That past is always going to haunt them. The government's allowed to bring that out. They're allowed to talk about it. They're allowed to say the things you did. Now, just logically and commonsensically, how does that make any sense? How could it be okay for one side of the judicial system to be able to argue about somebody's background and somebody's history and poor choices they made, but the other side's limited. Uh, you know, I have a hard time reprimanding that. Uh, one of the recent cases that I was involved in, one of the witnesses, big time domestic violence person, beat his girl up, uh, knocked all the teeth out of her mouth. If that doesn't talk about character, I, I don't know what does for a man to put his hands on a woman. That there pretty much says it all. Now, I'm not saying he shouldn't testify. You want to bring him in and testify, that's fine. But the defense should be able to ask about that. So you should be able to ask what, about his character, what kind of person he is. But no, you're not allowed to ask about that. You have uh, other witnesses in the, in the same case that I'm referencing, which I'll get into more detail on another episode. I just want this to be more of an overview but you have another witness who's uh, psychotic, for lack of a better term. I mean, the guy was psychotic. He would fake suicide attempts in order to get attention from the jail facility he was in, uh, just to get special treatment. He would try to set people up so he'd get time off. Really, really poor character traits. Zero moral compass. No moral compass at all. But the defense is limited on what they could ask him about that. Then you have the defendants. The defendants, you have the government given paperwork that goes back to the 70s, to the 80s, to all supposed things that these defendants did. That's allowed to be presented. That's allowed to be discussed. Again, I can't wrap my head around it. And the general public, I guarantee, is not aware of those things. They're really not. And unfortunately, the juror is not because they don't get to hear it. The jury doesn't get to hear what type of character the supposed witness in front of them is or has, I should say. They're not allowed to hear that. They only hear, you know, 
well, he, you know, he wants to make a change now. He wants to pay for his mistakes. And, you know, they, they want to paint a good picture of it, but they don't want to give the reality of who's in front of you testifying. You give the reality of who's in front of these jurors testifying, and a lot of these convictions would not happen because anybody with a conscience would realize, or anybody with common sense would realize, this person has an agenda. There's no truth to what he's telling me. He's only trying to benefit himself. They get paid very handsomely. I mean, some of the numbers that were getting thrown out on this recent case that these defend that these witnesses were getting for being a witness was incredible. And and what was actually comical was one of the witnesses when asked, "Aren't you getting uh, paid? Aren't you getting a benefit from this?" His philosophy was no, because he wasn't getting physical cash. So think about that for a minute. The government's paying for your mortgage. They're paying for your cars. They're paying for your food bills. They're not handed you physical cash, but they're relieving you of all your financial obligations, and you're going to say you're not getting a benefit? That's a joke, right? That Okay, you know what? I'm going to win the lotto. I'm not going to use any of the cash. I'm just going to assign all the cash to an attorney. I'm going to tell the attorney, just pay all my bills so I don't see one bill. I'm going to live for free. This way I could say, no, I didn't get any benefit. It's insanity. The logic is insane. It doesn't make any sense. But this is how they spin things. These are the type of people you're dealing with. These are these so-called witnesses. And if you're going to be a witness, be a real witness. Tell the truth. Don't lie. Don't make up stories. Tell the truth. If that's, if that's what you chose in life, you chose you wanted to be an informant, you chose you want to be a witness, you could look yourself in the mirror you know, and ruin people's lives when you were the person who was accountable. Nobody forced you to do anything. And when times were good, I'm sure you acted like, you know, King Kong and Godzilla all wrapped up in one. But then when things got hard, you decided to use, you know, that ace in your hole. Which, that's what you want to do? Great. Tell the truth, though. Don't lie about it. That's the problem I have. Don't be a liar about it. Don't make up stories because you really don't have anything to say. Don't make up stories. And, you know, all of these things really need to be brought to light. The general public need to understand when they're entering that courtroom, a lot goes on behind the scenes that they're not privy to. You could just go online, just search cases of people who were exonerated and look at the juror's response of all this information they weren't aware of. I mean, there was a huge documentary on Netflix recently, uh, Making a Murderer. And it goes, and you know, I'm not even getting into whether the guy's guilty, whether the guy's not. I'm not even getting into that. I'm just getting into the information of what's withheld from the jury. And it's hard for the jury to make an intelligent decision when they don't have all the facts or all the pieces of the puzzle because things are being limited, questions are being limited, you're not allowed to ask certain things. And that would be fine if it was for both sides, but it's, it's, one, it's, one, it's one way. It, you know, it's, it, it's one way. And that, that's a problem. Those are things that really have to be changed. Um, even the whole process of the grand jury. The grand jury really is, it's a joke in my opinion, in the sense that you can indict anybody for anything. And, that, you know, there's an old saying, you can indict a ham sandwich. It escapes me who came up with that saying, but it's it's the truth. You can indict a ham sandwich. You go in there, all you're given is one side, you're telling them, you know, so, you know what that tells the average person, anybody with common sense? That tells me when they target somebody, they're going to get you in the system. So, if they decide one day, let's let's target John Doe today. 
John Doe's uh, on my radar, and I want to target him. We're going to build an investigation around John Doe. It's not a matter of whether John Doe's going to get indicted. It's a matter of, <clears throat> it's not a matter of if John Doe is going to get indicted. It's a matter of when he's going to get indicted. Once that you're a target, that's it. Then you have to prove your innocence. And and the truth is, I know we all know that you know that's the uh, the background noise. You're innocent until proven guilty. That's not how it works. I mean, the second, uh, especially on high-profile cases, the second you're arrested, news releases go out, press releases go out. They have you dead to rights from the second they put those cuffs on and from the second they get their press releases out. And then they want to say, no, 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 you're innocent to proven guilty. That's not a reality. The reality is you're guilty now and you got to prove how innocent you truly are. And that's an uphill battle. That's an uphill battle. When something's true, sometimes it's actually hard to prove because you know it's true. You know the people are lying. How do you prove somebody's lying? You have to dig deep to prove somebody's lying. You have to somehow catch them and show they're lying. They're coming up with this fascinating story. You you don't know the person. You may have never met them, and you have to prove they're lying. Going back to the case I'm involved with now, the defendant, uh, which is close to me personally, and who my firm assisted counsel with. Uh, we had attorneys Anthony DiPietro and Robert Franklin were the lead attorneys. And they asked every witness that came up on the stand. I don't remember the exact amount, but it was definitely over 10. And I, all those witnesses, only two were able to say that they knew the defendant. And when I say knew him, yeah, they maybe shook his hand. And one, one of them maybe shook his hand. The other one was a friend. It was just somebody where the families actually knew each other, where uh, the defendant's father was friends with the witness's father. Then the defendant became friends with the witness. I mean, there's a whole family dynamic there. That was it. Every other witness got on. No, I, I don't know the defendant personally. I, I never met him. And I'm going to get into more detail into it. I'll, I'll discuss it a little more. But I just want to get an overview of, of what we're going to be talking about and really the basis of what the podcast is going to be. And I want to just try to focus on having experts in different fields really explain how things work. Just to open up, open up the listeners' minds to how there's another side of things and how people do get targeted and how once you're thrown in the system, it's not easy to prove your innocence. And you're not innocent to proven guilty. It doesn't work that way. Um, and what's really important is for clients, uh, defendants, when they're looking to retain an attorney, you can't fall for all the, you know, uh, all the smoke and mirrors, so to speak. You can't fall for, oh, he's been in super lawyers this many times. He's been in this magazine. He's in the, you gotta really talk to them. You gotta really see what they're going to do for you. You got to make sure they're going to defend you as if they're defending one of their family members. They got to be held accountable. I've been doing this for uh, several years now, and I don't know if I could count on one hand the attorneys I would recommend to individuals who call me. I have individuals call me. They ask me, they say, who could you recommend to help me? I have a few, and that's about it. And if they can't take the caseload, I really don't have any more because I will not give somebody... Uh, an attorney, I will not give him a recommendation where I feel 
that attorney and that lawyer is not going to work for that person and give them all they have. Now, I'm not saying, obviously, it's got to be 24-7. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you can't be an attorney that takes on 20 cases. You don't have time for the cases. You don't have time to speak to your client. Uh, You're just trying to build things out. You're trying to collect money. You're not really devoting what's necessary to go through the evidence to build a strong case. Guess what? Don't take on 20 cases. How about that? How about just focus on your clients? How about remember you technically work for the client? And there are lawyers out there who still think that way. I I know them firsthand. I mean, um, you know, and I get, there is no benefit to me recommending a lawyer. I would never take anything. I don't take referral fees. That's not what this is about. What this is about is helping the general public try to navigate and find who is going to help them, who's going to fight for them, who's not going to sell them out, (laughs) who's not going to, you know, uh, really do whatever and exhaust. That's the key. You have to exhaust every avenue. You have to go through that discovery with a fine-tooth comb. You have to pull apart. Your case doesn't start when you get trial dates or you get appearance dates. That's not when your case starts. You know when your case starts? The second you're indicted. You have to pull that discovery the minute you're indicted. You have to make sure the attorneys are going through it because there's going to be a lot of preparation that's needed. This last case, my firm, I worked on it for two and a half years. Two and a half years, pulling apart everything. Over eight terabytes of information extrapolating it, sorting it, putting it in order, pulling out what works for us, pulling, trying to even find anything. Our client had nothing, zero. There was nothing. And there was, this investigation went on from the year 2000 to 2017. The client, Stephen Crea, who's, who's also my father, and that's why I'm so personally vested in this, he did not, there was not one audio not one audio call, intercept, bug with his voice on it. Not one. In, in 17 years of investigating, not one. That To me, that sums it all up. There was over 90,000, I believe 90,000 audio files, tape calls, um, informants wearing wires, bugs in cars. Stephen Crea was not on one of those things. Not on one of those items. But yet they still get a case and they still bring it against him. Does not know the witnesses. All these witnesses who are supposedly saying he's re- he said this. There was not one witness who had a direct statement that supposedly came from the defendant, Stephen Crea. Not one witness was able to get on the stand and say, oh yes, he told me this. That's not how it went. Every witness that related to him, this is how it went. I heard from so-and-so that they said Steve Crea said this. So I believe that's twice removed hearsay. Twice removed hearsay, and that's allowed in the court of law. You didn't hear it directly. You're saying you were told this by somebody else who supposedly said it. Now, does that make any sense to anybody, logically? Okay, you want to bring in real evidence? Bring in some calls. You've been investigating for 17 years. Bring in some calls with his voice on it. Bring in a, a bug. I don't know, you, you want to say they have um, places where they hang out, that uh, the defendant was in a social club. Bring in the bug from the social club. What happened in there? Where's his voice on there? Nothing. They had surveillance. Another big sticking point that 
I couldn't wrap my head around how the jury didn't really see this part. They had surveillance of this club, that they tried making this club very sinister, that supposedly you you had to be a member of an organization, a secret society, to even gain access to the club. That was their narrative throughout the whole throughout the whole case. So what does the defense do? The defense pulls the surveillance that they played a trial, and obviously the, the portions they play just so showed our client um, entering the club and exiting the club. But they left out a lot of other things. You know who else was entering and exiting the club? Older ladies. Um, a lady with a child going in, bringing food. People off the street walking in. It was a social club similar to, uh, uh, what is that, the, the Lions Club or Italian-American Civic Associations. There's many different types of clubs, social community clubs. It was very similar to that. And throughout the whole trial, they were saying no women were allowed. What do we present? Inside pictures of the club. Showing not one, not two, not three, but several women in there playing cards, eating, watching TV, socializing. But none of that meant, meant everything. They glossed over that. And in 17 years, that's the evidence you have. You have a few surveillance photos of him going in and out of a club. It's You wouldn't believe these things unless you go through it. And what it really boils down to is when they target someone, this is how they operate. And it doesn't matter who it is. And unfortunately, what I'm seeing a big a big push for is I'm seeing the same kind of theme with minorities and with Italians. It's almost the same type of theme. And it's uh, it's crazy. It it really is. I mean, you, you know, a lot of people don't don't grasp it because they don't go through it. But you see these people who, who, they spent 20 years in jail. And then, you know, something comes out how, you know, they were basically set up. And they say, okay, go ahead. You can leave now. You know, you're out. And they think they can make that person's life whole again. They think they could do anything to give him back or her back the time they lost. It, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. And things got to be changed. And honestly, in my opinion, the only way to change it they could they could go for whatever bills they want and whatever you know laws they want to enact. None of that's going to mean anyway. The only way to change it, in my opinion, you have to educate the jurors. The jurors have to realize what they're being faced with prior to serving on a jury panel. You got to make sure you understand the whole picture. You got to understand that things are being limited. Questions aren't being allowed in. You got to really look at the whole case. You have to throw your bias and your prejudice out the window. I don't care if you believe somebody is a member of some kind of secret society. That's irrelevant. And actually, by law, it's not illegal to be a member. The government would try to paint it that it is, but it's not. It's not illegal. So even if you believe the hype, you believe somebody's an alleged member, you want to believe that narrative. Okay, believe it. That's not illegal. The person has to commit a crime. And what was, in this particular case, they saw they had no no real evidence, circumstantial or direct evidence on our client. So what did they do? They introduced what's called the Pinkerton Doctrine, which I never even heard of before of this. And I'm trying to educate myself on it now. And basically, in layman's terms, I'm going to bring on somebody who could actually explain it much more intelligently than I can. But in layman terms, it basically says if you're a member of this supposed organization 
and somebody in the organization commits a crime, you know nothing about it. You have no knowledge about it. You, you don't even know what's going on. You never had one conversation about it. You didn't even know it was going to happen. Somebody commits a crime, you're now liable. You're responsible. Makes absolute zero sense because in one breath you're saying you could be a member of the organization, but you shouldn't commit a crime. So now if you don't commit a crime, but someone else does, and you have no knowledge, no participation of that, you're guilty when they introduce this uh, Pinkerton doctrine and they, and they include that in the jury charge. It, it just doesn't make sense. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't make sense. And, and the general public really needs a good understanding of that. And I think they throw these things at the jury in these charges to confuse them because it's hard to grasp. I've seen attorneys look at some of these jury charges and it, and it confuses them how much is in there. They have a hard time understanding, well, how do I find if this person's guilty? How do I find if this person's not guilty? And that's a seasoned attorney. And you expect a regular hardworking individual to know how to decipher that and why do they do that? Why do they confuse you? That's when they want to get a conviction. They want to force a conviction. They don't want to allow the juror to use reasonable doubt. This case had more reasonable doubt than anything I have ever seen. And I'm not just saying that because I'm personally tied to it. I, uh, I'm not just saying that. It is what it is. If there was evidence there, I would say, okay, there was evidence. What, what are you going to do? We fought. We gave it a good fight. There was evidence. That is not the case. There was zero evidence. I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, trying to make a platform trying to say, oh, oh uh, you know, this was unjust when it was really justified. No, this was legitimately an unjustified case. This was a made-up case to target somebody, and justice was not served here. And now, you know, we're gonna we're gonna be going to the uh, appeal level on it, the appellate level, um, and we have a phenomenal shot because a lot of things took place during this case. And on another episode, I'll go into some detail where you know I'm comfortable going into. I'm gonna speak with with uh, counsel. I'll speak with. Um, uh, our retained attorney, Anthony DiPietro, to see what we could um, give insight to so people are aware of. But we're working on something very, very uh, extensive, fact-based, and <clears throat> really paints the picture of what took place here. This isn't a boiler point, uh, a boilerplate appeal. This is a legitimate appeal with several line items, several issues, several legitimate issues that have taken place. And there's a lot to be discussed on that end. And that's all going to be in future episodes. And I'm going to want, you know, a lot of the, you know, listeners, if they come just to interact, you have questions, you want to know certain things, certain ways I could maybe help. I could give you direction if one of your family members or anything I could do to just kind of steer you to avoid some of the perils uh, that that are put in front of you when you're going through this. Because when you're going through it, it's an uneasy experience and it's nerve wracking and it's hard on the family and it's hard on everybody. Uh, you know, it's, it's a horrible thing to experience, especially when you're dealing with somebody who's 100% innocent of the crimes they're being charged with. You want to say somebody committed a crime back in 1970-something and they did the time for it. Okay, you're going to come back again and try to charge them for the same crime that they already did time for by bringing it up? Of course, you're not going to put it on the indictment, but you're going to bring it up to taint the jury. You're going to mention it. You're going to fill their heads with all the things that they've done in their past. So in the government's mind, you're not allowed to make a change. You're not allowed to, to make a mistake and then try to move on. 
You make a mistake and boom, that's it. They, they're going to hold that over your head. And I don't know. I just hope that, you know, I hope that the general public could see through a lot of that. And from this last trial, unfortunately, the jurors did not see through it. The jurors bought it. They accepted that there was no hard evidence. They accepted, uh, they saw that there was nothing tying our client to any of these things. And yet in their mind, they said, well, we feel he holds this alleged position that the government's labeling him for. And if anybody uh, does anything, we're going to find him guilty. Insanity. It's insanity. And it should be unacceptable. And the jury's should not allow the government several bites at the apple. And what I mean by that is they can't bring in witnesses who are known liars, who are known to storytellers, who are known to set people up, who committed crimes while cooperating, and allow all that to take place and still give them credibility. They bring in a, a witness who's an out-and-out perjurer. He perjured years ago on one of his cases... To, to blame somebody else. He committed perjury, but yet they're going to bring him on again and say, well, you know, he lied back then, but he's not lying now. It's a joke. It's an absolute joke. But for some reason, the jury didn't look at it the way I look at it. And I try to remove myself from the personal aspect of this when I'm, you know, when, when I'm speaking. I try to look at this logically and I try to analyze it as if I had no ties to it. And I still can't analyze it without seeing the holes in it. Any logical person would see the holes in this. You don't have to be personally vested in these things. As any, as any family member, as anybody personally vested in something, of course you're going to fight. You're going to always defend your loved one, your own, no matter what. No matter what the case. But when you're actually seeing someone you care about get, get framed, and you're, and you're proving it throughout the whole time, I mean, I'll give you examples what I kind of touched on earlier where, and again, I don't, I'm not going to dive too much into it now. I think it's better segmented where we fo have specific focuses. But there'll be instances where the government will hand a transcript and they'll have things written on that transcript, you know, uh, that, that say, uh, let's say Bobby went in the supermarket and bought a uh, apple. They'll write that on the transcript. Then they'll play the audio and, you know, the uh, judge will give the speech that the transcript is not evidence, it's just an aid. But again, common sense. You're reading something, you're listening to something, you're going to believe what you're reading. It's just the way it goes. So the government gives a transcript that uh, an apple was purchased. Meanwhile, when you listen to it, you hear it was an orange was, pur was purchased. That changes the whole dynamic. Now you try to fight that and you try to show, no, that's not, that's not what was said. Well, they play it anyway and they still give the jury that transcript anyway. A lot of things took place along those lines, which I'm going to go into detail about. It's just, it's not ethical. It's not justice. That's just not justice. I'm sorry, but it's not. It's not justice. Just play fair. I don't want you to like the other side. I don't want you to like the defendants. I don't want you to like the lawyers. Forget about all of that. Take all personal feelings aside. This is the... We're in the United States of America. We're supposed to have a fair legal system, right? Okay, run it fair. Just be on a level playing ground as far as that goes. You present your case fairly and honestly, and we'll present ours. Imagine if the defense would lie and create stuff or, or twist words on, 
on transcripts. It could be an honest mistake. We could have just messed up. But it wouldn't be painted that way. That's not the way it would be painted. That'd be a big problem. We have to make sure our facts are accurate. And rightfully so. You take that on. You can't make those mistakes. You better make sure it's accurate. Even on our end. I would I would feel responsible if my firm uh, screwed something up and we had a, the wrong word in there. I would take accountability. I would say, no, we screwed that up. That's our fault. And we, you know, we should get reprimanded for it because that's too important to mess that up. So I'm not saying, you know, uh, I would have a different set of standards for myself or for my organization or for attorneys. No, it should be the same set of standards all around. And that's what we're going to dive into. And we're really going to focus on just trying to help those going through the criminal justice system or any, any kind of just judicial system just to get through it. And like I said, I have a handful of attorneys that I would feel conscious-wise, I would feel good about recommending to people because I would know, you know, it's, it's, it's my reputation. If I'm telling you I'm going to give you somebody to help you and then I give you somebody and they screw you over, who looks bad? Not the attorney. I, I would look bad. You know, <laughs> so that's very important to me. If I recommend somebody and I tell you this person's going to help you, I truly believe they're going to help you. And I'm going to make sure that I hold them accountable and I would let them know you have this recommendation. You make you make sure you work hard for it. You know, we had a bad experience personally on, on, on our um, on our case because obviously I was I was vested with it. And I made sure whoever we got in there was doing their job and um I went through a couple of attorneys at the beginning and it wasn't, and honestly, it was at no fault of their own. It was just dynamic was different. And I, and I'm a bit, I'm a little difficult to work with. I'm going to be honest because I'm very, I want things done yesterday and I want them done perfectly. And you know, so that's on me. That part's on me. But there was one attorney you want to talk about unethical. You want to talk about, about a guy. I mean, this guy just made stuff up. He made up things. He made up plea offers that were supposedly given he would uh, uh, gossip about other attorneys. He would bash people. Insanity. Pure. What professional person does that and operates in that manner? Who does that? Who does that? I don't care. I've been in service my whole life. I've owned businesses my whole life. I, I couldn't care if I hated my client. They would never know it. I would always treat them with professionalism. I would always give them 110% of my effort because they hired me. Otherwise, I just wouldn't take the money. If I didn't want to do it, I just won't take the money and I'm not going to work. But you want to operate in that manner and then you want to spread lies and you want to badmouth people. You want to badmouth other returns. You want to cause havoc. And then you leave it on the family to have to get rid of you. And then you want to spin that story of why we got rid of you. You know, just be careful. Honestly, people, just be careful of who you bring in. These attorneys have to be there and they have to be fighting for you and fighting for your families and fighting for your life. You make sure they have the moral compass to do that. Because if they don't, run. Run for the hills. If they're in it for the money, that's not who you want. There's there's a dime a dozen of those type of people who are in it for money in every kind of industry. That's not who we need as a society. Society needs legitimate people. Hard, you know, somebody who's hardworking, ethical people. You know, I was always taught you can't be lazy in life and expect to do well. You got to really break, you know, break your ass. And I'm sorry to put it that way, but that's the way you have to do it. You really do. You have to work hard all the time and the results will come. And if you promise somebody and you sign up to help them, you better help them. 
You don't take their money and then just blow it off and then BS them that you're helping them. That's ridiculous. That's unethical. That tells me you have no conscience. You have all, all the BS and all and, and all the hype and that's all nonsense. That's all nonsense. Actions are what means something. Words is a bunch of please. Any anybody could talk a good game, right? Anybody could come to you. They talk like forget it. They talk like uh, the next president of the United States. They could talk like you know a real statesman. I mean, really well versed. They sound phenomenal. Yet when it comes time to produce, their work is horrible, horrible. So what good are they? They're worthless. They're nothing. You got to work. You got to back that up. I'm not into uh, all the talk. I'm into, okay, if I'm going to tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And if I can't do it, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you I can't do it. So that's all I have for today. I mean, that's just the opening uh, the opening segment. I think this gives you a good idea of the things we're going to be jumping into. Uh, you could email my organization at info at justicetechpros.com. We also have live chatting, so if you want to go on the website and just chat with somebody, just something's on your mind, or inquire more about what we do, you could do it that way. Uh, this podcast isn't going to be about plugging my show, and pl- this is just going to be about what we could do to help. I, you know, if I could steer you in the right direction, if I can make a recommendation to help you, if if listening to the show actually gives you some good ideas where you could write them down and use them to help your current case that my firm has no involvement, then, then we succeeded. Then we succeeded. If you have a better, if you prepared yourself and equipped yourself to, to enhance your defense and enhance your team based on some of the pointers and some of the things I'm bringing to light and some of the things I'm mentioning, then we're good to go. And that's it. I thank everybody for uh, tuning in. Till next time.